0: Acts chapter 27, and I'm going to begin reading just so we have the full context at verse 13. Hear the word of God. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clouda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands." Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we, should, we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ships. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now when the fourteenth night had come... As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment. For this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves." And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to the land. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we look into it, I pray that your spirit would anoint our minds, our hearts, sanctify us and enable us uh, to uh, grow and benefit and to worship you and respond to this word as your spirit directs us. Uh, We pray that you would enable me to faithfully and clearly uh, preach uh, your word and that you would be glorified in this part of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I think most of you in this congregation are convinced that there are many reasons to believe that uh, our nation is facing a very looming economic storm, and uh, we're going to be facing some pretty tough times in the near future. Not everybody in our nation is convinced of that, but I'm convinced we're going to be facing uh, tough times. I think it would be bad enough, uh, even if we hadn't passed the health care bill, But with that and with global warming and cap and trade and other uh, neat, neat programs or horrible, horrible programs, depending on your perspective, uh, being in the wings, uh, I just don't see how even our resilient economy is going to be able to sustain the added debt, the added layers of government uh, bureaucracy and regulation and the anti-business kind of policies that uh, the the Al Gore's of this world uh, uh, really have with, with their agendas And even some liberals, uh, I have noticed in the last uh, two, three weeks, have begun getting really nervous about what is going to be happening, even while we've got pundits saying everything's going great, you know, we're recovering. Uh, There are uh, uh, several headlines that I have read that have the words, perfect storm, uh, in them. I personally don't think it's going to be a perfect storm, if you remember that story or the movie everybody dies in that one. I mean, that's a massive storm. I don't think it'll be of that nature. But uh, I I think it would be prudent for every one of us to begin preparing ourselves and planning for some major, major economic woes and problems uh, coming in in the near future. And today, what I want to look at is surviving the storms of life. Now, it's not just the economic storm of our nation, because I think Uh, most of you uh, either will or will know others uh, who will go through other storms sometime in your life. Uh, There are storms that threaten to throw and tear apart a family, Uh, storms of divorce and kids getting pregnant and getting uh, onto drugs and uh, job losses. There are storms that threaten to tear businesses apart. There's all kinds of storms that people may uh, face uh, some of them may be just health problems uh, where they're, they're disabled or some major calamity has uh, come up. And what I want to look is how do we face storms with the kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul d- d- did? How, how do we glorify God in the midst of the storms? Uh, when I was um, meditating on this passage and saying to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to preach on this? I was very, very much encouraged. And I hope that uh, you find some very practical encouragement as we go through this passage as well. Now, there are several people here who have not been in our act series, and uh, some of the rest of you, it's been almost two months since we've uh, been in here. So what I want to do is I want to back up just a little bit and uh, show you what's been happening when the contrary winds were blowing. What it was was a typhoon that was gearing up. They didn't realize it was a typhoon coming, but uh, show you what's happened to this point. On the Mediterranean. In verse 10, it shows Paul warning the crew, the centurion, anybody who will listen, that they really ought not to be sailing in October. Of course, this was standard advice by any of the mariners in the Mediterranean. After October 5, it's extremely dangerous. You just don't sail on the Mediterranean. And he's not prophesying in this passage, he's just making informed uh, observation based upon his. Previous travels, uh, all that he's heard of the captains that he's talked with, uh, shipwrecks that he's been on, and, and things like that. So if you look at verse 10, so saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now it turns out that no lives were lost, and some people will say, Ha! There's a prophecy that was not 100% accurate, so prophecy doesn't have to be infallible. It doesn't say he prophesied here. Later in the chapter, he does prophesy, and it's exactly right. But here, he's just making an observation. He perceives something. This is wisdom uh, in action. And Paul was giving people a warning about being needlessly risky, and that's exactly what they were doing based on anybody's observations in the Mediterranean. It was risky to be sailing after October uh, 5. And I believe that we have a duty of warning people about perceived dangers as well. Now, not everybody's going to listen. and It doesn't seem like too many people are listening even to all of the uh, warnings about an economic storm coming up today, but it really doesn't matter. You know, some people don't listen because people have been crying wolf so long uh, that uh, they say, ah, it's just another false alarm. We don't really need to worry about this. But in your outlines, I give some other reasons why people ignore very legitimate warnings that we see in this passage. First reason, time pressure. Verse 9 says, So when much time had been spent, so they've already wasted a lot of time, much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, etc. So it was getting late, and they wanted to move on. Now, people who are very goal-oriented... When they want to get somewhere really bad, many times they are willing to take on huge risks. And you can see this in many different areas, crazy drivers (laughs) on the road who are just wanting to get there fast, even if it means uh, being dangerous. And you can see it with investors uh, who treat the stock market uh, almost like a roulette table. Uh, But uh, sometimes people will do crazy things because of time pressures. Thinking they knew better was another reason. Verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. It's an interesting thing. Most people don't think disaster will happen to them. Uh, Even when people are in raging battles, they always think somebody else is intended for the bullet. Most people don't think it's going to happen to them. Sure, other ships have sunk during this time of year, but we think we can make it. Uh, sure, other people, you know, uh, can uh, get VD, but just this once, you know. I think it's going to be okay. Uh, sure, uh, you know, not wearing seat belts uh, may be more dangerous statistically. Uh, you can look at any number of things, but people say, you know, I think I know better than the other. It doesn't matter what the statistics say, and then they end up facing a storm of maybe being a quadriplegic or a storm of some other uh, sort. Uh, bad conditions on their hands. Inconvenience is an even bigger reason. Verse 12 speaks of Phoenix being much more convenient spot to be in, and it was. It was a much more commodious uh, port. They could have gone to land a lot more easily uh, on a regular basis. And I believe that many Americans, and I'm being just giving a quick survey here because I don't want to. We've already dealt with this, but uh, many Americans, I do not think are willing to give up comfort in order to survive. They are just too used to living high off the hog, and they're not willing to make the kind of economic cuts and other things that will enable them to survive. Why? Because it's inconvenient. A little do these people here realize they're trading in a massive inconvenience just for the tiny inconvenience of having to be in fair havens. Uh, Verse 12 gives two other reasons why people don't listen to warnings about the arrival of uh, perfect storms. First, even if they worry a bit that the warnings are true, if the majority are not listening, they think, "Ah, man, do I really want to go up against the majority? They think that they're wrong. And that's what was happening here. The majority disagreed with Paul's warnings. And we can definitely apply that in America. The other reason in verse 12 is desired comfort. And so whether it's inconvenience, whether it's comfort that Americans have to give up, I don't think Americans are willing to make the sacrifices needed, at least at this point, to take the kind of precautions and cuts that will help them weather the storm. Uh, Verse 13 highlights yet another reason. Things really aren't that bad yet. It says, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. At that particular moment, they didn't see that there was any danger. Now, it's true, the south wind was an anomaly uh, at that uh, particular uh, season, but it was sufficient to justify them ignoring some of the warnings that Paul had given. And we see that all over America. If people themselves are not struggling, they've not lost a job, they've not uh, suffered under the economic um, woes that are beginning to uh, uh, unfold, they think, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, the federal government has handled things like this before they could do it again. And then finally they think we're going to be careful in verse 13. Oh no, there's a point number G mentions desire. I think too many people are so blinded by desires. They cannot see clearly. You know, a lot of pregnancies happen because people are blinded through desire. And, uh, It is one of the reasons why I uh, believe that all uh, courtships should be supervised courtships if you're being wise. It's not that you don't trust people, it's that you trust what God's Word says about human nature. That's all that it is about. But anyway, finally, they thought, we're going to be careful. In verse 13, they plan to sail very close to shore so that they're not swept out to sea. Of course, we know the story. Try as they might, they could not avoid being caught by this storm and being thrust out to sea against their will. And it's uh, my fear that too many Christians in America are going to keep sailing straight into the, into the disaster without taking any of the corrective actions that are needed. And I think in part it's because the church needs discipline. Uh, The church is not a holy church, and God loves their welfare more than their comfort, and I fear that before the church wakes up to what it needs to do, it's going to have to suffer a great deal. Now, I hope that's not the case, but I fear that it uh, very much is before it comes to the end of its humanistic rope. Nevertheless, even that suffering is a blessing. God knows how to bring people to the end of the rope where they have to look to Him, and that brings us to the main part of the passage that I want to look at today, and that's dealing with the storm. How do we deal with the storm uh, when it comes upon us? Because there's going to be Pauls today who suffer on the ship that you're on, just like the ancient Paul suffered, and uh, it's through no fault of your own, but you need to know how do we take advantage of the storms that we are facing, how do we use it in a way that will glorify God? And the first thing I want to show is that God is extremely creative, extremely creative in bringing people to a place where they admit that they're wrong, they're willing to repent, they're willing to take corrective action. And we're not there yet in America. In fact, if anything, America is more arrogant than ever. Uh, We are headed 75 miles an hour down the highway straight into the tornado. ...and uh, think that everything's going to be just fine. And so I think it's really a good time to be preaching on this subject. It's uh, before the storm really has hit uh, hard. Now let's begin at verse 14, which says, "...but not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon. "...came suddenly, came without warning, came immediately after everybody was saying, ...hey, things are recovering, things are going along quite uh, well." And the strange thing about it is these were experienced sailors and if you look at the ancient literature of the Mediterranean, everybody knew it was dangerous, it was a big risk to be sailing uh, in October. And so there's a sense in which they deserved the storm that they got. Uh, Nobody's going to feel sorry for them, they were taking a risk when they did that. And economists today, I think many of them know full well that the kind of policies our nation is engaged in are absolutely disastrous. For our nation. And yet they have the audacity of saying, hey, there's an economic recovery. We're moving forward. We've got fair winds, soft winds that are blowing, and they're going to continue to blow. And yet we as Christians uh, know better. If you've studied much about the biblical economics, you know whatever kind of storm, whether it's big or little, there is going to be a major repercussion that's going to happen in America. A uh, lashback. Verse 15. So when the ship was caught, Could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Uh, This typhoon was so strong that the ship was completely caught in her grip. They were now at the storm's mercy. They were starting to blow out to sea. Now, I have a feeling that the centurion was having a sinking feeling in his stomach and thinking, oh boy, we should have listened to Paul. He was insistent that this was a bad thing to do, and it's now uh, too late. There's not much of anything that they could do about it. Now, Americans are not in the storm yet, and for the most part, they don't have these sinking feelings of disaster. Uh, many of them are not aware that there will be any disaster, because uh, I think there's still a great deal of trust in America in the big messianic state. The state will fix everything, and it's, it's quite pervasive. But if you look at other countries that have already gone through the same kind of economic storm, the hyper, hyperinflationary typhoons, like Angola and Argentina, Belarus, Bolivia, Bolivia, Brazil, Peru, Chile, Zimbabwe. You'll see all of the telltale signs starting in America that were starting in those countries and that led them to economic disaster. And uh, the interesting thing, and I think this is a, a beautiful thing about such disaster, is that you look in those countries and a lot of people were brought to a place where they despised socialism. They no longer trusted Messianic State. Uh, in Zimbabwe, you ask people if the state's going to fix something, uh, they'll laugh at you. <laughs> you know, the state's been trying to fix things for years. And it's, it's, uh, if you don't know much about Zimbabwe, the hyperinflation there, it is an absolute disaster. People starving. You can't find anything in the stores. In fact, the government loots the stores uh, along with other people uh, looting it. And so it's not always a bad thing to have things falling around our ears if it means that people will get to the end of their rope and they'll look to the Lord uh, for help. But the sad thing is that frequently it takes a lot more to bring people to the end of their ropes uh, than uh, just a huge storm coming in. Often when people are in the throes of a perfect storm, they are desperately grasping at every straw and they will look to anything for a solution that 's how Hitler came into power uh, if you 've done much reading about the Weimar Republic and the hyperinflation there, uh, some of the stories that just make your hair stand on end. My grandpa went through that, and uh, he tells stories of people running as fast as they could with wheelbarrows full of money, trying to exchange this before it devalues. It was devaluing by the hour. And he said there were a lot of times thieves didn't even bother stealing the money. They didn't want the money. The little bit of groceries that you would buy with that wheelbarrow of money, that's what they stole. They stole tangible things from the farmers. It was an absolute disaster. So when Hitler came along and he began promising that he would turn this around, uh, even though he was running roughshod over the Weimar Republic's constitution, they just said, well, we've got to do that for the safety of the people. We've got to do that in order to... Uh, to get through uh, this hyperinflationary economy. So it's not guaranteed that just because our nation is uh, you know, going to be going through a storm that they'll come to repentance. We need to pray that they would come to repentance, but many times what happens in a nation is they just look and they give more and more power and more and more trust uh, to the state. Well, there's a sense here in which there's desperation on this boat, and they are throwing one frantic effort after another frantic effort to try to keep this boat afloat. Verse 16 shows them desperately trying to find shelter, running under the shelter of an island called Clouda. Now, that quick action secured them a few minutes, not much time, but enough time to be able to secure that skiff and to tie the boat together, the next two frantic actions that they're engaged in. And I will have to admit that there are actions that humanists take in various nations that buy that nation time. Uh, they, they frantically are trying to do one thing or another, and it buys them a little bit of time, just like these people Uh, were bought uh, sometime, but the laws of harvest are still at work. There's going to be a storm, and you will not be able to avoid the storm no matter what extreme measures you take. The next quick action they took is in the second phrase in verse 16. We secured the skiff with difficulty. That was their lifeboat. Now, it had been dragging helplessly behind, filled with water, just waterlogged. They could barely get that thing up onto... Onto the boat, and when you think about it, it's kind of humorous. This is their safety. It's kind of humorous if the big ship is, <laughs> you know, not going to survive those massive waves. How is a little skiff going to do it? A little uh, dinghy, but uh, it made them feel that it was at least some precaution that they could take. Verse 16: When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Uh, The storm apparently was so violent that it was threatening to tear the boards apart. So in the ancient uh, world, what they did, they had four different ways of trying to keep the boards of this ship tightly bound together. And then they would winch these cables together, just tightening everything down so that they could ride through the storm. Uh, The next phrase shows, despite their best efforts, they were being driven away from land out into the open water. It says, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. Now obviously there's a bit of time that's transpired here because the Sirtis sands are a long ways away from Clouda, But they were heading that way and they were heading that way fast and worried that they were going to go where all of these shipwrecks have happened before uh, they struck some kind of a sail. It, for sure, it was not the main sail, but a lot of these storms had a small storm sail that get caught just enough of the wind where they could head you know, diagonal ag- across these waves rather than uh, just being battered about every every which way. So they decided it was risky to do that, but it was even more risky to be um, uh, uh, hitting the Sirtis Sands. Verse 18, And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, The next day, they lightened the ship. Now, we're not told what they threw overboard. It was likely their cargo because the next phrase says, On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. And notice, our own hands. The prisoners were involved in that. And so commentators say, since the prisoners were involved in this, it must have been more than the crew could handle. And they say it was probably uh, the the main yard, which is a spar the length of the ship, ...that they threw over and some of the heaviest tackle. that's significant. If they were throwing this stuff over, they were taking the most extreme measures possible. Because this, you don't ordinarily throw away your emergency tackle. They were, they were getting rid of everything that was going to weigh this boat down... ...and uh, 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 taking extreme measures to survive. And sometimes the measures that nations take to survive are um, risky measures... They're, they're, they're extreme, sometimes they're unethical, but uh, people at least feel like they're doing something. Uh, they're just a frantic effort, they're clutching at straws. Verse 20 says that for many days they were in the dark. Now that's depressing in itself. They didn't have GPS back then, <laughs> they didn't have compasses you know, to guide them. They really got their guidance from the stars, and so when it's dark day after day, and they're being tossed back and forth, they're coming to a place, they have no idea where they're at, where they're going, and that could be pretty distressing and pretty, uh, pretty scary. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, I see all of this that we've been describing as God's hand at work on that ship to bring all of these people to be willing to listen to the message of Paul. That's what I see going on. God sovereignly bringing them to a place where they will finally listen to Paul. When all else fails, Christians need to be in a position to stand in the gap and to give the message that is needed. Now, so far, America is not really interested in listening to the Bible's solutions. The Bible does have solutions to the problems our nation is facing. Uh, They're not really that interested in in the biblical blueprints that you find in the Bible. But when every other option runs dry, Christians had better be prepared to stand in the gap and to be giving that message uh, to a world in need. And so just as God worked with that ship to bring them to the end of their rope, What God does is he brings nations uh, to a point where they realize humanism doesn't work. It doesn't matter what humanistic solution that this world has thrown out there, uh, they have not worked. And uh, bringing them to a position where Christians can, if they will, stand in the gap and make a difference. Now, there have been times where Christians have uh, taken advantage of the situations in South America. They've been able to stand in the gap. More often than not, Christians were part of the problem, and uh, they were not giving any of the kind of message uh, that needed to be out there. But people are most ready to hear about God's hope when they have lost all hope. I think that's, that's one of the clear messages that we see here. So how do we work with God? How do we get on board? How do we make the most out of these storms and, uh, and, and glorify God in them? Roman numeral 4 Uh, I want to look at some uh, steps for making the most out of our perfect storms. And the first thing that I would say is that we need to call people to repentance. It may be the first people we need to call to repentance are me, myself, and I. Uh, Kathy and I have had to repent of at least one bad economic decision, you know, that's had repercussions on our lives and take the actions needed uh, to be able to survive the uh, storm despite that bad decision. But America needs to know not only the solutions, they need to know what they are doing wrong uh, is, is the reason for this, uh, for, for, for this storm that is coming. Otherwise, what's going to happen is when the storm subsides, they're going to continue to cling to the same old, tired, and messed up problems. So verse 21 is a rebuke. It was a reminder of what they had done wrong. Now, it may seem petty. It may seem like, well, I told you so. Uh, That was not the point. Paul knows they're not going to understand the solution unless they repent of their wrong methodologies, the things that they had engaged in. Otherwise, the solution is simply a band-aid. Look at verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. This is what Ron Paul has been saying to America. You should have been listening to me. And it's interesting that even mainstream media is beginning to look at Ron Paul and talk to him and interview him. His book is beginning to sell like hotcakes. People are beginning to recognize here was a guy long before there were any indications that was saying what was going to happen. And yes, it's been happening just like he said. And I think in the same way that Paul here began rebuking them long before the storm happened, if we want people to take the message of the Bible seriously during and after the storm, we better start talking before it's a popular message. We better start talking uh, before the storm has even hit. And that's what he did back in verse 10. And the whole speech in verses 21 through 26 is a verbal witness to God in our disasters, that's point B. Now, these people were pagans, and you might say, what difference does it make if you talk about God? They're not going to believe about God. Uh, it didn't hinder Paul at all. It didn't seem to bother him at all. Paul not only talks about God, he talks about the angel of God and the message that God has given to him. He talks about God's control of providence, his control about the future, and then down there in verse 35, he prays publicly over his food, he thanks God for his deliverance. In other words, Paul was willing to bring God into the public arena. He was not ashamed of the Lord in that circumstance. And consequently, he had an impact on that ship. I believe the whole ship came to Christ. Now, there may have been some exceptions, but there's indicators that everybody on board that ship came to Christ. Why? Because he was bold in his stand for God. This is the same thing that happened with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were boldly bringing Christianity right into the heart of the, the storms that they were, that they were facing. When life is out of control, nothing seems to be working, people are going to be much more ready to think about and believe a God who is in control, okay? We should not hesitate about bringing God's word into the lives of those on the ship of America, both before, during, and after the disaster, because I am convinced these disasters are good things, These disasters are preparing people for the gospel, they're preparing people to hear God's law and to accept his blueprints, and they may have, by God's grace, a humility to listen to that word at some point. The third thing that I see Paul doing uh, to make the most of this storm was to put off fear and to bank on the promises of God. And it's clear here that Paul has some fear as well. So let's let's read verses 22 through (coughs) through 26. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of, of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now the angel had told Paul, do not be afraid, and I think the implication is Paul was afraid. I think all of us have a tendency to have fear grip our hearts when disaster hits. I think it's a, it's a, it's a human emotion that is very natural when any time that there is danger, and what we have got to do on a daily basis is say, no, I'm not going to go down that road of fear because fear and faith are utterly incompatible. You cannot live by faith If you're gripped by fear. So on a a daily basis, you've got to be putting off that fear and saying, Lord, I'm going to fasten my mind upon you. I'm not going to be gripped by the things that are flailing this world uh, all around. I'm going to heed the angel when he says, do not be afraid. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the warnings that Christians have been given to America about uh, the uh, uh, upcoming economic storm are not designed to instill faith. They're designed to do the exact opposite, to make people panic and to give up and to feel hopeless about the situation. God wants us to be giving faith and to be giving hope to America. And so we want to talk about that a little bit. But I I should just briefly mention that we have not been given the specific promises that Paul has, that your family is going to survive this economic disaster, whatever the thing might be. Uh, we've not been given a specific promise like Paul has, but we have been given promises that will give you all the hope that you need. And we've been given blueprints. The sad thing is that many Christians aren't willing to follow God's blueprints. That's why they're in the storm in the first place. But God has given the blueprints. He's given us the promises. And we need to bank on those promises and pray passages like Second John or Third John verse 2 that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. And um, so anyway, uh, we, we need to be putting off fear. Now, related to this is the need to constantly remember and remind ourselves to whom we belong. Verse 23 speaks of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Now, this was an incredibly powerful testimony. What Paul is saying is, I don't cling to my life. I don't even own my life. I belong to God. If He wants to continue uh, to give me life, I bless Him. If He wants to take away my life, I bless Him. But I can relax in the fact, the knowledge that God owns my life and my whole purpose in life is not to cling to things, to cling to money, to cling to anything. In fact, Paul loses everything he had on the ship. His whole goal in life was to cling to God. God owns me. I serve Him. And as I serve him, he will take care of me as far, I'm invincible. I cannot die sooner than it's God's will for me to die. I tell you, if you daily affirm, Lord, I give you my house, I give you my wealth, I give you my brains, I give you everything. If you want me to be senile, if you want me to uh, be poverty stricken, I'm willing for you to take all to give all, but I want to be a faithful servant to you. Now, when you have that stewardship attitude, it will engender courage within your heart. It's an incredible thing that just the thinking about those things and the reaffirmations of those things internally uh, really helps us. And I really love this chapter. I think it's so practical as you're going into, uh, into tough times. Now, take a look with me at uh, verses 25 through 26. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, sometimes storms are simply tests of our faith and our loyalty. God will bring a storm into our life to see, will we be like Job and worship Him, serve Him, trust Him, continue to to be faithful to Him, or will we turn away? They're tests. Uh, And uh, it may be that the storms that the Lord has brought into your life are to see. Are you going to despair? Are you going to be a person of faith? Very literally, Jesus did this when He sent His disciples across the, the sea in that boat. He went up into a mountain to pray, and it says He was watching them. He knew they were going into that storm. He sent them into the storm deliberately to test their faith and see, is your heart a heart that is loyal to Me? Now, the next time He did it, He gets into the boat with them. But He falls asleep. He's exhausted and his disciples in the midst of the storm are perplexed, Uh, maybe a stronger word than perplexed, they're upset with the Lord, but they're wondering, how can there even be a storm when Jesus is in the boat with me? That didn't make any sense. Why would God allow a storm when Jesus is there? But he does. And why is Jesus sleeping anyway? And Jesus has to rebuke them for their lack of faith. And I'm I'm, I'm sure my faith would have stumbled then, just like the disciples did. And you can see hints that Paul's faith was stumbling a little bit here as well. He was fearful uh, about what the storm uh, was bringing. Now, the point is, God sometimes deliberately brings storms into our lives, gives us an opportunity to trust Him, continue to be faithful to Him, and that's exactly what Paul did. Uh, He was willing to trust and obey. And I want you to notice a very striking contrast in this passage. Verses 22 through 26 give a categorical promise from God, no life will be lost. But I want you to look down at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship... You cannot be saved. So just because God has promised no life will be lost does not mean they can start acting irresponsibly, uh, irresponsibly. Yippee, you know, we can do whatever we want. Just let's go to bed. We're tired anyway. They couldn't do that, nor could they let these people off because if God had instructed them. They needed to be together as a group. Paul was just as convinced that if they were irresponsible, they would indeed be lost. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, we believe that uh, God has predestined everything that happens in this world. I think Ephesians 1, there's many passages that talk about that. But we also believe we must be responsible if those predestined ends are going to be accomplished. There's no contradiction there because God not only has ordained the ends he's ordained the means toward those ends and he even works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure he works it all together for good but the point is paul shows a kind of a balance in his life that shows a godly perspective that'll get you through any kind of a difficulty here's here's how i've summarized it for you i think it's a marvelous balance never be indifferent to responsibility and human action simply because you believe that god is sovereign. And on the flip side, never lack faith in God's sovereignty simply because you've been commanded to believe. You see, both sides of that equation, trust and obey, are absolutely critical. Let me, let me repeat that again. Never be indifferent to responsibility in human action simply because you believe in God's sovereignty. And on the flip side, never lack faith in God's sovereignty simply because you are commanded to be active. Both sides of the phrase, trust and obey, are absolutely essential. I think this illustrates it so well. For example, God's promise of provision does not do away with the reality of danger of sinking on the rocks and the reefs uh, that they were uh, going through. In verses 27 through the end of the chapter, there's a real danger. There's a real danger of sinking. Security in Jesus does not do away with real danger. Okay, the Christian life is a call to balance, and uh, let's just take a look at some of the actions and the balance that we see in Paul's life. Uh, They're in your outline under point G. Prudent actions. Okay, verse 28, they take soundings, (coughs) and they keep finding that the water is getting shallower. Now, it would be foolish for them to say, Hey, God's promised that um, none of us are going to perish anyway. So there's no need to take any soundings. I think everybody would think that is pretty foolish. And yet you apply it to other areas of life where where people apply the promises of God, and you see, and you know, their brains aren't working the same way. They're not preparing for economic disaster, and they say, I'm just trusting God. I'm trusting God. And uh, the the Scripture indicates, no, it's prudent to take soundings of your troubled waters and make the best judgments or corrective actions that you possibly can. Verse 29 shows that they dropped anchor, fearing that they were about to be dashed on the rocks, and they prayed. Uh, Verses 30 through 32 show that Paul insists bad ways of handling the situation have got to be cut off. Uh, You can't just be lackadaisical about those things. Uh, look at verses 30 through 32. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had put, let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. Now, some people are so passive when it comes to God's sovereignty that if they were in the boat there with Paul, they would have probably said, oh, let him go away. It doesn't matter. God's promised that uh, we're all going to be saved anyway. And they would have just taken a passive attitude uh, toward that. But that's hyper-Calvinism, and Paul had no part with hyper-Calvinism, nor did Paul. I mean, nor did Calvin. (laughs) Calvin was a Paulinist, okay? He was a Biblicist. Uh, He believed just as strongly that our actions are absolutely essential as he did that God was absolutely sovereign over everything. And this is why, you know, when the hyper-Calvinist told William Carey, you know, that if God wanted the heathen in India to be uh, saved, uh, he could do it some other way. You don't need to go over there. He just ignored him because William Carey knew that the same Paul who wrote about God's predestination in in, in Romans also wrote, how will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if uh, there's no preacher? And how will there be a preacher if he's not sent? We've got to hold both of those together. Now, why did Paul have everyone eat in verses 33 through 34? Well, there may have been other reasons, but there's two that he highlights here. And the first is, this is for your survival. If they didn't eat, they would be too weak to swim to shore. Okay, so it's just a very, uh, very practical response of their lives. He says, you're eating this for your survival. It's an example of human responsibility. But second, Paul wanted them to eat, he says here, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Well, there's God's divine sovereignty. He's promised, uh, y- you know, you're not going to die, so you can eat. So eating was in part an expression, hey, I believe God's promise... That He's going to save us so I can relax. I don't need to fast. I can eat. And sometimes our actions really tell whether you believe something or you don't believe something. For example, if God said, you know, you need to get out of that house. It's burning down, but I will get you out of here safely. If you just sat down on a chair and say, oh, great, God's promised to get me out of here. We're going to watch some miracle happen. You would probably fry. You'd burn up in that house. Nobody would take that seriously. They would say, you must not really believe this house is on fire. You're going to run. Why are you going to run? Because God has said you need to get out of there. God has said that the house is on fire. Now, sure, you're going to trust God's divine sovereignty to keep timbers from falling on you and flames from exploding in front of you but you're going to take both a trust in his sovereignty and your human responsibility seriously. Now, I think most people would do that if they were in a house that was on fire. But when they apply it to other situations in life, they don't do that. They refuse to get insurance. They refuse to save up an emergency fund. They refuse to get out of debt. All the while, they're rationalizing, hey, I'm trusting in God. God will supply for me. Well, they're only trusting half of God's statement. We need the same balance that Paul shows in this chapter, trust and obey, trust and be responsible. And there are other actions of responsibility that they took. In verse 38, they throw out even more wheat into the ocean. Why? It's to make the ship lighter, more buoyant. No doubt by this time there's a lot of leakage that's been happening. Verses 39 through 40, they try to land the ship. They're not successful in getting as close to the shore as they would like, but they try. And then in verses 43 through 44, it shows that they still had to swim, okay? They're not waiting for God to carry them to, uh, to the land. They have to swim. Now, I hope by now you can see that taking corrective actions for any of our problems is not a failure to trust in God's sovereignty. Go- Let me just give you some examples. God is sovereign in opening and closing the womb. But that does not mean that when all other actions have failed that we cannot take corrective action uh, to <clears throat> maybe do some surgery on scarred fallopian tubes or something like that. Now people say, yeah, but God could do a miracle. And I say, well, of course He could do a miracle. He, he did a miracle on the Sea of Galilee. He said, peace, be still. But ordinarily, God does not do miracles and get you out of the storm that way. Ordinarily, God wants you to take proper action, and He will prosper the work of your hands. That's why we pray in Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands. Now certainly God could miraculously uh, take us out of this economic downturn, but I believe this passage indicates we need to do everything we can to keep the ship from sinking. Okay, this might mean downsizing, it might mean setting up an emergency savings account or investing in tools or other tradable goods, it might mean getting out of debt, Now it's true, some precautions some people will be able to take and others won't be able to take. But let me tell you something, if you've done everything that is your responsibility, and that's what I usually do, is I put a a sheet with a column on each side, your responsibilities, God's responsibilities... God does not hold you responsible for what you absolutely are not able to do. But when you've done all of your responsibilities, you can trust God. And even when a Paul or somebody else comes along and says, you're not going to survive if you don't do such and such, you say, well, I can't do such and such. Uh, I've done everything I believe God has called me to do, and I'm just going to trust God with the results. I think you can do that uh, very, very uh, safely because you've taken the corrective actions. Now, certainly God could do a miracle. He could calm the storm in America by converting every congressman and every senator. He did it in Nineveh. You know, I've never doubted that God could do that. There's been times where I've prayed, God, please, convert, you know, some of these key judges and other people like that. God could do that. But ordinarily, I think God wants us to take responsible action and kick the rascals out of Washington. Uh, I think we've got to be involved. These men are actively destroying our economy. They are running roughshod over the Constitution, and I simply will not believe a person who says, I'm trusting God for America if they're not doing anything to save the ship of state. If they're not doing anything, they're not trusting God. It's trust and obey. Those two have to be held together. You've got to do something, even if it's just prayer, but you've got to do something. We need to be involved in politics. This is a fantastic passage for correcting those who are pacifists. Now, if you examine all of the storms of life in light of this passage, I think you'll find it gives correction to a lot of ways that we tend to respond to storms. Some people are too passive. Some people trust too much in their own action. Some people are paralyzed. Some people are fearful. We need to be Pauls who give people hope and who trust and who obey. Let me conclude this morning by mentioning three other things in this passage that I couldn't figure out how to fit into the outline. Ran out of time, so we're just going to tack them on at the end. But the first is simply an exercise you could do on your own, and that is to try to discover uh, what are some of the hope-stealers in your life. See, Paul had some things that were taking hope from him because he included himself. We'd given up hope. There were hope-stealers for him. There were definitely hope-stealers, Uh, for the other sailors that were there and what you need to do is you need to write those down and then lay them before the lord and strategize how do we deal with these hope stealers Uh, perhaps the hope stealer is a sinking feeling that you're running out of finances and you're going to get onto the shoals and the reefs of financial bankruptcy now that is robbing you of hope write it down